Sometimes it feels like the sun will never rise, like the birds will never sing again. Believe in a power greater than what you are going through when you don't know what to do. That's right. When you don't know what to do, what should you do? Keep on breathing. From Los Angeles and from the Big Apple in New York City, uh, I'm Dave Nassani. You're on the Caregiver Dave Show, along with my lovely co-host, Adrian Gruberg, at thecaregiverspace.org. And we're coming to you live and on demand 24-7 on 21 global audio and video platforms, including iHeartRadio and iTunes and YouTube and Spreaker SoundCloud, and a whole bunch more. I'm not going to name them all, but uh, we're so happy that you're on here with us, and we're proud to be voted number one caregiver podcast of the top 50 on Player FM, as well as the top six best podcasts by Caring.com, as well as number three podcasts out of thousands of caregiver podcasts on Feedspot. And we do have an exciting show planned for you today. Ashley Bendick. Bendickson. Did I say that right? You got it. Nailed it. Okay, there was a company that made brakes. It's called Bendix. So I'll just say Bendix. There you go. Perfect. Adrian making a racket if she joins us. Hi, Adrian. Adrian making a racket because I had no audio. (laughs) Well, welcome to the show, Adrian. And we do have an exciting show planned for you, don't we? Yes, we do. Right on cue. And, uh, Ashley Bendixson is a best-selling author of The Language of Time, a powerful Mm. memoir chronicling her story as a caregiver to her mother after she developed early-onset Alzheimer's at just age 48 years old. Could that happen to someone that young? Yeah, I had a friend Mm. like that, yeah. Well, we discussed how, how to reframe difficult moments, and that's certainly a difficult moment. The Gift of Being a Caregiver, and How to Cultivate Meaning in the Time We Share with Our Loved Ones. But before we get started, I want to thank my last week's guest, me and Adrian. (laughs) (laughs) We had a cancellation. Thank you, Adrian, for showing up last week. And uh, it was a great great interview. And you you can thank me, too. Go ahead. I'll give you a moment. (laughs) Thank you, Dave. (laughs) (laughs) You're welcome. Anytime. Anytime you're in a bind, just call me. Oh, okay. Just a reminder. Yeah, and when I'm out in New York, we should find a little time to go grab. So we can't grab lunch. Nothing's open, right? No, I can't see you. Can we have a picnic in the park or anything? I can't see you. Uh, All right, forget about that. Uh, Maybe I'll call you. Anyway, just to remind you, you can watch or listen to that interview and all our interviews on our website, our membership website caregiverdave.com or any of our other 25 global networks that I mentioned earlier, iHeartRadio, iTunes, YouTube, SoundCloud, you know, all of those. All right, enough of that. (laughs) Welcome to the show, Ashley. And I'm so excited to have you on. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here and to have this conversation with the both of you. Wow, we are just as excited as you are, maybe even more so. Um, <laughs> tell me again how you found us, because this was like two ships passing in the night, and we says, hey. Yeah, you know, it was really serendipitous. I, you know, wrote my book, the, 
Right. There we go. That's a big word. Starting off with the big words. Um, Leave it to a writer. So, you know, I, I, my book, I just, I hadn't really been focusing on, you know, getting the word out about it. And I thought, well, let me see, you know, where caregivers are, because I think those are the people that will benefit most from, you know, my story and, and the book that I have out in the world. And I just was like, where are the caregiver podcasts? And yours just popped right up. And uh-huh. I just, I did some research into you and, and said, you know, I would love to be on this show and have a conversation with you. So yeah, here we are. Perfect. I, we had we had no idea that how many people listen, and we still kind of don't know because they're like everywhere, and mm-hmm. a lot of places don't share that information with you because right. they don't know. But um, we must be doing something right if if we're number six and number ten and number whatever. Um, we're we've been doing it for seven. I've been doing it for seven or eight years. Adrian's been around for maybe five. I don't know, but. Um, Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of shows. So, yeah, we're out there, and we have a presence. So thank God for that. So, yeah, well, it's needed. <laughs> tell us about your mom. Now, what do you know about young people like that coming down with Alzheimer's? That's pretty scary. I know a guy in my church who's just been diagnosed with early-onset dementia, and he is, I think he might be in his early 50s or late 40s. He, he looks very young. So sad. He, he went driving to work, and uh, he didn't he didn't know where he was, and he couldn't get back home, and and uh, that's a scary thought, isn't it? It is. Um, you know, I've done some research into the statistics around this, and the most recent study found that 200,000 Americans have early onset Alzheimer's, so that would be before the age of 65. But I almost feel like the number would be higher if it was properly diagnosed because I don't think physicians expect someone in their 40s to have Alzheimer's. So, you know, personally with my mother, when she first started to develop the signs of it, it was the same exact situation. She was driving my younger sister to school, a school that she had been driving to for years, and one day just couldn't figure out how to get back home. And, you know, when we took her to the doctors, they kept saying, maybe it's stress, maybe it's depression. No one floated the idea of Alzheimer's or dementia or some type of, you know, brain illness. So it took us a long time before she even got diagnosed. But, yeah, that's kind of how it began, uh, just the confusion and misdiagnoses. And one day my sister and I just thought, this is it's Alzheimer's, but it just seems so irrational and, and such a crazy thought because our mom was only 48 years old when this began, but turns out and years you later she finally was your, diagnosed. You were in your 20s? I was, yeah, uh, early 20s. So it was a pretty that affect, shocking thing. How did that affect you your, your life? Go ahead, Adrian. Go ahead. You I was and your say, sister are you? the ones who diagnosed her. <laughs> we yes. did. It doctors so doctors hate to diagnose that. I had a mother and a mother-in-law. They were both in their 80s. And they, no, they were in their 90s. I'm sorry. And man, it was like pulling teeth getting them to admit because they're afraid of lawsuits or, or mm. you know, they don't know if, if we're the kind of caregivers or, or um, children that will uh, just make up stories to steal their estate and everything. I mean, it's terrible. Yeah, there was actually um, a research study a few years ago that found that only about 50% of patients who are diagnosed with Alzheimer's are actually told by physicians. So there's Hmm. been a huge movement to try to reverse that because people aren't getting the care or the treatment or the resources that they need, especially in the beginning. So it is heartbreaking. 
So my question um, was, how did it affect your life exactly? A 20-year-old is pretty active, dating probably, uh, college. maybe college, uh, just going here and there. Home is the last place you probably want to be. So tell me what went on and how you're still paying the price and so on. Yeah, it is not, uh, it's not the role you expect to fill. <laughs> yeah, I know. Where do I begin? Um, it's right. not the role that you expect to fill when you're in your early 20s. And just a little backstory on me, I was already kind of in a really different phase of my life because my, my backstory is I was a survivor of domestic and sexual violence. I was a college wow. dropout. I was homeless. And so I was really rebuilding my life. I was back in school. I was working. I had all these goals I was working towards. And then this happened. And part of me at the time felt, I've been through all of this trauma, all of these difficult things. I know how to handle difficult moments. So I, I had a self-reliance that, like anything else, one day at a time, I would figure it out. But uh, nothing could have prepared me for what the next eight years was going to look like. You know, I turned to you know, the Alzheimer's Association's website. I read the stages. It, it's, it has nothing to do with the day-to-day -day activity of a caregiver. And yes, I was in school. I, I had this goal. I wanted to graduate top of my class. I still had to pay my bills. You know, I, I was living on my own in the neighboring city. And every moment of my life was spoken for if I was... If I wasn't in school, I was visiting my mom. When I wasn't working, I was seeing her on lunch breaks. I was taking breaks from classes and calling up care, uh, you know, home home nurse associations and calling up our, our housekeeper and seeing. I mean, it was just constant. I couldn't not think about my mother for one second for almost eight years. Wow. And it does and put a strain on relationships as well. You know, it's. I had moments where I just felt um, old boring, <laughs> you know, like doing all these, you know, caregiving responsibilities, but I'm supposed to be young and youthful and out and having fun. And I just, you kind of wonder like, how is this my life right now? So, um, yeah. And you know, I'm the oldest of three. So I was taking care of my sisters. I was kind of co-parenting with my dad. Um, it was a lot. It affects every aspect of your life. Mm. And how are you still paying the price now that she's gone? I mean, do you feel like there's eight years of your life that, that you got cheated out on or, or you're trying to catch up. Uh, uh, you can be honest here with us because we have burnout caregivers listening and you're <laughs> talking to them. Yeah, you know, I will say that I didn't, I didn't get to establish the relationships in my life that I needed. Um, mm. Close friends, just a, a close network of people that I can turn to because I was always the provider. I was always the go-to for everybody else, that I never allowed myself to do that. And the older you get, and now in the time of COVID, it's harder to meet people and make new friends. Yeah. So I think socially, you know, I, I lost that opportunity to really cultivate my network. Um, however, I'm an alpha female, and so somehow I still <laughs> accomplish things <laughs> during that time. Somehow I, I graduated as valedictorian of my class and, like, wow. did all this community work, and I... Was your major? Really involved. So I, I still get everything done, but you know, I there's parts of me that never got to be a normal 22 year old. Sure. Uh, there's parts of me that never got to be a normal adolescent because of my experiences. But you know, I try to find faith in the fact that they have shaped me into who I am, and there's lessons in everything. And um, yeah, I just trust in 
trust in the story, as sad as it can be at times. Now, I don't know too much about your sexual abuse uh, childhood, but do you somehow blame your mother for not watching out over you or doing things that maybe she should have done or could have done? Ooh, that is a tough question. <laughs> you know, I think um, my mom was a stay-at-home mom, and she was great at being a stay-at-home mom. She was great at keeping our house, being there for our dance recitals. Mm -hmm. But my mom also, I don't think that she was the most uh, assertive person. You know, she kind of played the back seat in, you know, her marriage. And I don't think she mirrored to me what a, a strong woman with a, a voice looked like. And we certainly never had conversations about dating or relationships. So... I don't think I had the uh, role modeling that I, I needed as a teenager uh, to avoid some of those situations. Yeah. Wow. That's, uh, how does this involve your sister? I mean, who was the primary caregiver? You say you were the person. Did she have any responsibility at all? And did that cause friction between you two? Like, well, you're not pulling your share, or I'm doing all <laughs> the work. Where are you? And, you know, I'm, I'm here, and you're out dating or whatever. I mean, what kind of... <laughs> uh, interactions did you have about this because it's usually not pretty <laughs> family dynamics are so tough and it's the it's the thing that you don't expect to ever happen uh, differing opinions judgment this one thinks you're not doing enough this one's questioning mm -hmm. why you're doing that it's it's constant um, but I think because we were all so young it created a very different scenario because I was in my you know early to late 20s during this whole span Whereas my, so I have two younger sisters, my middle sister was away at college, and so was my younger sister at a certain point. So I kind of was the only person that was around. Yeah. Um, there were times where I knew, you know, maybe my middle sister could have come around more, or she always had excuses, and I, I had to fight that, you know, resentment that I would feel. Yeah. Um, because I'm thinking, I don't want to spend my Saturday night here, but I'm here, you know, every weekend. I'd like a night off. And, you you know, you feel very alone. It's like, where is everybody else? Why is it just me? And I know one thing I experienced was you'd have family members saying, you know, oh, Ashley, if I can ever do anything, if, you know, if you need anything, let me know. It's like, yeah, show up. <laughs> Give me a night <laughs> off. You know, and you want to, like, just shake everybody and think, well, what does that mean? What do your words mean? So... <laughs> Uh, importance of stating your needs. So I need you to help so me. <laughs> yes, you need you need to make that clear when somebody says, "What can I do? Is there anything I can do? I'm here for you. Be ready with what you need. Make that yep. list because a lot of time it. you can't think of it at the time they ask it. Right. You pull out that. Well, I'm glad you asked. Can you do this? <laughs> no. Can you do this? <laughs> How about that? That or that? Here, take a look. You yes. got to do something on that. I mean, you got to be assertive, and it's almost embarrassing. And uh, sometimes you just embarrass yourself uh, trying to ask for help. But you know what? Mm -hmm. This is survival. It's either you or them. Mm -hmm. um, why don't we take a short little break, and uh, we'll be right back. So don't go away. Dave Nassani, the caregiver's caregiver, has just released his sixth book entitled It's My Life Too. Thrive to Stay Alive as a Caregiver. It was specifically written for caregivers who know they should be putting their needs first, but just don't know how. Dave is the sole caregiver to his wife, Charlene, since 1996. He knows firsthand what caregivers are going through because he is one. He now speaks all across the country, offering caregivers his amazing caregiver support package. Even the airlines tell us that in the event of an emergency, to put your oxygen mask on first, 
before you help your child with their mask. They know that those who don't heed their advice often black out, thus becoming unable to help either themselves or their child. And caregivers are exactly the same way. It's my life too. Thrive and stay alive as a caregiver will help caregivers who are neglecting their sleep, diet, and social life and learn to put their needs first. Pick up your copy today or buy one for your special caregiver on sale everywhere and at caregiverdave.com. And we're back on the Caregiver Dave show with my co-host, guest, co-host and guest, there we go, Ashley Bendixson and Adrian Gruberg. And we're talking to Ashley today. She is an author and a caregiver and a former caregiver, right? You're not caring for anyone right now? No, thank goodness. I'll take a short yeah. break. <laughs> Time to uh, care a- for yourself. Adrian mm-hmm. has a um, a group called After Caregiving, I think she does, that oh, uh, that really helps because, you know, it's almost like you need therapy now to get over all that stuff and to speak mm-hmm. with other people who are in your position now. Um, and some people just hope for the day that they become an after carer. So uh, you have and a carry lot of the guilt to be And for. carry guilt around. They carry yeah. the guilt around that uh, they wish it was over. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And they have no right to feel guilty about that right. because uh, they're doing a lot better than most people would. A lot of people just say, sayonara, goodbye, right. throw mom into uh, a nursing home, which, you know, nine out of ten of them I wouldn't put my cat in, or uh, mm-hmm. from that movie, throw mama from the train, you know, just throw her under the bus. <laughs> um, and especially with your past. So you might have been able to justify it in your mind, well, what's she ever done for me, you know, and... Uh, a lot of people like that. My father did a lot, but my my dad is very much a workaholic. Um, mm-hmm. His his business is Lucky his, him, huh? you know. He didn't know how to take time off until the last few years. So you know, most of it was us just juggling back and forth. You know, me picking up the slack when he was at work. Sometimes I called out of work so my dad could go to work, and <laughs> you know that that felt backwards. But um, yeah, so we we both kind of co-shared that responsibility. You know, um, when you're in your early 20s, that's got to be really, really rough on you. Um, what What are you doing with your life today? Um, life is good. I, you know, you I'm, I'm self-employed. Yeah, oh, you're I'm self-employed. I, I'm, yes, yeah. I'm actually um, a full-time speaker uh, on the subjects of domestic and sexual violence prevention. So I go into high schools and colleges. I teach healthy That's relationships. A good yeah, yeah. It's um, if it, you know, there's ways that we can bring our stories full circle, and we can repurpose our stories to help others. You know, hence why I speak now, and hence why I wrote this book. Is I just felt, you know, it's a story that needed to be told, and hopefully it serves other people's lives. You know, it's a book I wish I would have found <laughs> when I was going through my journey as a caregiver. Yeah. Now, are you the author of one book or two books? It is my first book. Your f- yeah. Congratulations. When, when when did it come out? Earlier this year, actually. Um, it was in the works to come out, but, you know, once the uh, shutdown happened and I couldn't travel and speak in schools, it, it just became a perfect window of opportunity to finally publish this book. And, you know, it's funny. People will say, oh, how long did it take you to write it? I'm like, I don't know, 12 years <laughs> because I started journaling. So one of the things I, I did as a caregiver, and I've always done this for self-care, is I journal. 
Um, I've been doing this since I was a teenager. So I was journaling, you know, the day to day with my mom, you know, the progression of her disease, also venting. And I ended up just taking a lot of these journal entries and yeah. you know, conversations I taped with her and turning it into this book. Um, so it was real. It's really been a labor of love. You know, I, I wrote the book, I think, more for me at first than anything else. I just had to get this story out. And um, and now that it's out there, the response has been amazing of just, you know, fellow other caregivers saying that they could relate or certain things that felt unique to them or they felt really isolated in what they were going through. It was validating to hear if you know, mm -hmm. somebody else has gone through that, too, which I'm sure you hear this all the time in your conversations. And um, yeah, and I think my my biggest goal really with the book was cherish the time that you have with the people in your life because you never know you could wake up one day at 22 and know that your mom's got a terminal disease and there's no there's no change in that yeah. did she have moments of clarity were you able to share things with her from time to time they were pretty brief um my mom's cognitive decline seemed to happen pretty quickly um and even when we had you know conversations uh, they were very surface level and I couldn't really have you know deep moments with her which is also unfortunate because you know as a young woman that's the time you want to develop a bond with your your mother mm -hmm. and sure. you know I never got to go to a bar with my mom and have a glass of wine I never got to have an adult <laughs> conversation with her you know and um, I wish I had you know there's things I wanted to tell her about my childhood that she never knew about and so it's really unfortunate but I always say so it was a true reversal of roles. I mean, I was doing my mom's hair, bathing her, dressing her, and I feel like it was a gift. I would not have changed it for the least because I think I developed a bond with my mother that I might never have developed. You know, the dependency we had, just this deeply like primal connection that even when right. her words didn't make sense, I, I understood her, I was there for her. She could recognize my face and, and calm down in moments of, you know, fits. So I think it's a really beautiful, you know, journey that we shared despite, you know, all that was missing from it. Did she know who, who you were? Or you were just a familiar face? or I, I was like one of the only people that she still could recognize um, mm -hmm. up so until her, her final daughter. months. Yeah, and I think that's a product of, you know, I was there almost every day. She could utter my name and she could utter my dad's name from time to time, but um, other people she struggled with. Uh, I think it was just a few months before she had passed. You know, I remember she said my name again, and it was just, it was like a miracle. She hadn't spoken a word mm -hmm. for months. And um, yeah, so that right there to me is beautiful, right? That she still could recognize well, me even in those final months. How, how long did sister... ago did she Go pass? Ahead. I just uh, wanted to. to that yeah, six years ago, August 2014. You're still it's feeling crazy. the effects of it. Mm. Um, how did your sister react when when she couldn't remember her, but she could remember you? Was there kind of some jealousy going on there? Everyone reacts differently. I don't think she realized the disparity. You know, I mm. think she saw my mom less and, and saw how bad things were getting. I don't think she saw the moments that I got to share with our mother. And that's just because I was around. Yeah. Yeah. You know, people say that uh, you're either a good caregiver or you're not. Uh, caregivers are, are born. They need to have empathy and compassion and sympathy and just a million other qualities. And, and 
usually those are the ones that get drafted into it because the loved one knows who they want to care for them. And if there's many siblings, you know, lucky you, you're the one because she knows you'll get the, get the best care from. So, the cream um, rises to the top. <laughs> yes. So were you all those things? I mean, did, where did you struggle with? Where did you uh, come to the point sometime to say, I can't do this, I can't take another day of this, um, I'm burning out, I need a vacation, I need help? Uh, were you almost at that breaking point of, of burnout? Um, I did. It, I lost some light. It's uh, East Coast, so it's getting dark at 4.30, unfortunately. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I honestly, I felt burnout when my romantic relationship was not going well. One mm -hmm. of the things I struggled with the most is I had no one to turn to, and that included the person that I should have been able to turn to. You know, I was dating someone, it was a fairly long-term relationship, and you would think that's the shoulder you can lean on when you have those, you know, moments where you're at your breaking point, and I didn't have that. And mm. those were the days where I just felt so alone. I remembered having, you know, my mom was in and out of nursing homes at times, and I remember just thinking, I don't want to spend another night at the nursing home. It's Saturday, I want to go out, I want to see my boyfriend. Mm. They just weren't around, they weren't a good partner, and... Um, those are the moments that I just felt broke me because I felt I am here for everyone who is here for me, and I just didn't have that support. How did you make the connection by saying that and then by saying, if I don't take care of me, nobody's going to? I assume you came to a point where you just decided to put uh, self-care as a high priority, yes? I did <clears throat> um, because I had to. You know, I was just... My mental yep. health was starting to suffer. I was not in, like, mm. I love the summer. We have beautiful summers here up, up in the Cape. And I wasn't enjoying it at all. I wasn't going anywhere. And I realized, you know, I'm sitting here complaining. I have no one to go out with. And I'm a very independent person. I said, you know what? There was one summer. I said, I'm just going to take myself out. I'm going to take myself to that roof deck movie. I'm going to go to the Cape today alone. I'm going to, you know, take a week off and go to Martha's Vineyard. And I That's forced myself to do this. Yeah, and you do feel guilty, though. You know, oh, like my mom's going to be calling my name all day, and, you know, I've got to leave my dad with that. And But I'm like, no, I have to just do this. And you always come back feeling recharged, renewed, and more present, you know, when you're back as a caregiver again. So, yeah, I, I had to be really intentional about doing that stuff for myself. Did you ever get in conflicts with your dad that he's not doing enough and that, you know, you need a va uh, vacation or a break and he needs to step up? And maybe, you know, not be such a workaholic? Do you ever have those kinds of conversations? We definitely did. Um, <laughs> you know, I think... How'd it go? <laughs> I think I, I expected this of my dad, so it wasn't totally shocking. But there were some moments where I just said, you know, I have bills to pay, too. You're going to make me take the day off tomorrow. I have to wake up and be here at the hospital, and you're going to go to your office, and... And, um, yeah, and I think sometimes he would he would even expect me to be around even more than I was. And I'm like, you know, mm. we have two other – I have two other siblings. Why is it all on me? And this is also the curse of being the firstborn, right? Typically we are more nurturing, you know, in control. Uh, there's higher expectations. So, yeah, we, we butted heads a few times. But it was interesting because my dad changed eventually through this whole experience, and he – 
works much less now. And in the last probably two years of us caregiving, we actually got extremely close. Also, mm -hmm. I think in a way we probably wouldn't. And uh, we were just, we were on the same page for a long time together and he was appreciative and, you know, I, I'd never seen him be so appreciative towards me of anything. And, and I felt like that was a, a little gift out of all of this too. Like now I have a pretty all right relationship with my dad. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> No, we can't. I can't hear you. <laughs> I can't Sorry. hear you either. I had a I had a cough and I muted myself and I forgot to. Oh, myself. okay. Have to fix that. <laughs> um, I was going to say your father's still alive. He is. Yep. And you have a good relationship with him now. I don't. I don't talk to him as often as uh, we did. You know, in the in the early aftermath, but yeah, you know, he's um, he's doing well. He. He changed his health habits after all of this. He changed his diet. He started going to the gym. He, like I said, he works less, and um, he's doing, you know, very well despite it all, which is nice. And he's, you know, he has a, a partner now, so he's got some companionship, which is mm. also a relief because one of my my first fears after my mom passed was now I have to look after Dad, right? Because ah. he's all you, alone. You may still house. have to one day. <laughs> oh, I, you worry about I, yeah. that? I dread this. I dread this. But uh, I was glad he? I didn't have to transition right into it. <laughs> How old is he? He is 70. 70. And so maybe his new partner will take on that responsibility. Is she in good health? Is she younger? She is um, like 12 years younger. So, yeah. So she could. Okay. There you go. Take that on. <laughs> maybe you can encourage that relationship to blossom. <laughs> yes, yes. Stay with her, Dad. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so have do you feel like the goals of your book has happened yet or you're still um, uh, hoping that other things would happen with the book and and uh, what I know you mentioned your goals that you had for the book but maybe you can go into that a little more deeply what uh, what is your ideal uh, expectation for the book and how it's affecting people um, you know of course, right now, I would love it to reach more people. Um, you know, obviously, you know, birthing a book in the time of COVID was not an ideal situation because I expected to do a book launch. My community had been following yeah. my blog for years. Um, I used to actually chair our regional walk to end Alzheimer's. So I had a lot of people in my community that were, that were yeah. rooting for this book. And, you know, I didn't get to launch. Um, I'm not doing the book tour I hoped for. I'm, you know, basically selling it from my, my home office. So, you know, I really want it to reach more people and I'm, I'm working on that. That's a daily work in progress. But mm -hmm. I think the response exceeded my expectations. You know, when I wrote this, I mean, obviously for a living, I talk about domestic and sexual violence. And it's, it's deeply personal stories that I share. But I've always felt like telling those stories were serving a, a purpose. Like, I have to raise awareness. I have to fight for justice. And for some reason, when I wrote this book, I felt like it's just a big, like, vulnerable, like, explosion of stuff, like, that was from my diary. And I'm like, it just felt so scary to share like my daily struggles, like the nights I went home and just wanted to drink a bottle of wine, my relationship problems, like my mom, you know, the struggles with my mom. And I just thought, do I actually want anyone to read this? I'm like, I want to publish it, <laughs> but no one buy it and no one read it because <laughs> it was terrifying. And 
I actually found a group of people to be part of my launch, and that just eased all of my nerves because there was such positive feedback. People that weren't caregivers had no relation to Alzheimer's or anything that said they cried, they laughed, like they thought it was one of the best memoirs they'd ever read, and I was like, that is amazing. And, and I mean, you've written books. It's crazy to think like someone is spending, you know, three hours poolside reading your story, and it's just... Uh, yeah. It's nuts, but um, yeah, the response has been has been beautiful, and you know, I think one of the things that I really wanted to get across is cherishing the present moment and how we take for granted just the littlest things, like you know, my mom making me a sandwich, right? Like eating a sandwich my mom made me, or just just the little stuff that we go through our lives and we don't think twice about. And I wanted to capture those little moments, you know, uh, in this book. And, you know, I think people have taken that away and, and thought, you know, I'm going to call up. Like, I've had people say, I read your book and I, I thought, I gotta, I'm going to call up my mom today. Or, you know, I'm going to write letters for my daughters to read someday. And it's mm -hmm. just been really cool. Like, just appreciate your family and cultivate deeper relationships because someday they're gone and whether you're 21 or, or 61 you're never ready so it's like you know be aware of just how lucky we are to have these people um were you worried that the person or the people who had um molested you would find out read your book understand you're telling the world and and now you know how do they react to it yeah so um that's not in the book too much. I really brush <clears throat> past that. Um, right. But I do plan on writing a book on that. And they are, I'm, I'm sure they are all <clears throat> well aware that I am, you know, out there in the world speaking. Some of them I know that they're aware. They've approached me over the years. But, you know, I've I've been on, you know, the regional news. I've been in papers and publications. So it's it's not a surprise to any of them. But, you know, sadly, those individuals have just moved on, and they're just ruining someone else's life. So <laughs> I'm old news to them at this <laughs> right. point. It's sad, yeah. Wow. Sad stuff. But you're, you're coping extremely well, and being out there as an advocate is just the best. Thank you. Yeah. You know, when I finally ended that whole cycle, <clears throat> I had this just intuitive moment where I realized, you know, if I continue to struggle, they continue to win. Right. Or that story yes. continues to drive my life and I don't want that anymore. And and uh, it just drove me to <clears throat> want to be the opposite, to defy odds, to succeed. So that if, I heard this mm -hmm. great quote. It was uh, Sinatra. Um, the greatest revenge is massive success. And that just spoke to how I was feeling in the moment. And I said, I'm going to turn my life around and not let that decide what my life's going to look like. And it's probably the same thing for, you know, caregiving for something devastating for loss it's you know it's it's heartbreaking it's okay you know it's okay to feel negative emotions but it's also this doesn't have to determine the rest of my life and what are the silver linings and how can I make something beautiful out of such a you know traumatic experience and I think that's I think that's one of the healthiest ways you can cope and for me a recurring theme has been repurpose your story you know use it mm -hmm. to, as a tool to help others and um yeah it's been really cool to see that in my my profession and now with this book and with this whole journey of yeah. alzheimer's advocacy the lesson here mean, go ahead Adrian. i just wanted to know if you intended to be a writer was that part of your plan before I really, before your mother i mean just being a journalist or whatever 
You were journaling, yeah. so I, was that because you well, one day wanted to write a book, or just you were just trying to survive? I think I just love the act of writing. I've always loved just putting pen to paper, and I, I mean, I've been keeping journals since I was a kid. I have stacks of them, so I like writing. And yeah. then, you know, once I was 20 and putting my life back together, I thought, you know, this is a story I'd, I would maybe put into a book one day. So I've always, I've had ambitions of writing a book since I've, I guess, found my, my entrepreneurial spirit. I'm like, I'm going to write a book yeah. someday, <laughs> have a podcast and, you know, all these things and speak on stages. So I've always wanted to. I didn't think that my first book was going to be completely unrelated to my business. Um, but it's the book, it's the book that needed to be written first. You know, it's, um, like I said, it's yeah. labor of love. It was cathartic writing it. I mean, I would get out of my house and just go to a bar and get a glass of wine. I'd be writing my book at the bar. And sometimes I would just like start sobbing or I'd be laughing. <laughs> like, what are you working on? Like a packed bar. Like, what are you doing? I'm like I'm writing a book. <laughs> right. Writing is so cathartic and it's, so important. I used to do something on, on the caregiver space about the page listens. And it's not just writing it down. You're getting it out. You're expressing it. And, and it's a relief as well. well it so is, gonna take yeah. A, we're going to take another break. Hold that thought. and We'll be right back. Don't go away. One Arm, One Leg, 100 Words, Overcoming Unbelievable Hardships, is about Charlene, a stroke survivor. Back in 1996, Charlene was a healthy, normal, very active 52-year-old woman whose amazing talents resemble that of both a Martha Stewart and a Wonder Woman. But all that changed when she suffered a massive stroke that left her severely speech-impaired and paralyzed on the right side. Who am I? My name is David. I've had the privilege of being Charlene's husband since 1975. We had a wonderful fairy tale, storybook-like courtship that culminated in our marriage a year later. Charlene had just come out of a marriage where after 10 years, she received two black eyes and a broken nose by her former husband when he came home high on speed. Charlene believed in no second chances of any kind for abuse, so she left. Finding herself all alone in the world with her five and ten-year-old daughters, Cynthia Lorraine and Deborah Lynn, she started raising them by herself for the next two years. Then fate brought us all together. After falling in love with Charlene, Cindy, and Debbie, our love then produced Rebecca Elizabeth. We had a wonderful, normal life for the next 20 years. But today, things are very different for everyone. How about the reaction of nine-time Grammy and Devil Award recipient the godfather of contemporary gospel Christian music, Andre Crouch. Charlene just won't let the promises of God go, and she has not let her circumstances get in the way of her faith. She's not just a survivor, she's more than a conqueror, as the Bible states. You'll be encouraged by her testimony, regardless of what you're going through. Available everywhere. And we're back the Caregiver Dave Show with my guest, Ashley Ben Nixon and Adrian Gruberg. And that was the book that I had to write because it was a memoir of what I've been through. You know, if we don't get it out, I think it will turn to cancer. You got to just lush and get all those feelings and emotions out. Yeah. Toxic. Um, yeah. 
So I'm concerned about you. You gave up uh, a boyfriend. Well, you know what? It's better that that happened than you found out after 10 years of marriage that, that he doesn't <laughs> hang around when there's trouble. Um, have you found mm -hmm. someone new? Um, I, I have uh, a few over the years. Um, single again. Lo and behold, um, but it's fine. That's you know the price of being um, who right, I am. Right, everybody, all and, you uh, <laughs> eligible men out there, she is uh, on the meat market. <laughs> That's right. Hit me up. Um, yeah, no, I, I've You're I've established some really anybody. good relationships since. <laughs> yeah, that's good. I I have a question about the the way you were able to communicate with your mother. Um, there are some people who, who you know, don't you remember, don't you remember, don't you remember, and they don't quite get that you really have to change your, your way of communicating. How did you find that? Yeah, so my personal opinion, and this is what I chose to do with my mom, was to always try to normalize a situation. So if she wasn't making sense, I would just try to pivot. I'd make light of something she'd said. I'd say, oh, you silly goose. It's not, you know, it's not cold outside. It's summer. And, you know, I, I think some people are like, no, mom, it's not cold. We're in summer. Why exactly. don't you remember this? And I, I don't think that's helpful, um, no. but that's just maybe I'm wrong. So I always no, try to normalize situations. Yeah, no, you're you know, right. That's... <laughs> Usually That's someone has the, to read a book to find that out. Yep. <laughs> but you intuitively <laughs> knew it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it just seemed obvious. Like, you don't want to make them feel dumb or attacked. It's not their fault. It's a, right. a brain disease. Um, so, yeah, I would just, I would crack jokes. I would make light of conversations. And I think the, the longer you care, you're a caregiver for someone, uh, you start to understand their jumbled language. Uh, you know, my mom would latch on to certain words and I would know exactly what she was talking about. Like she would call everything a candle or, and she'd say, oh, we got to go get the candles. And I'd say, oh yeah, I know. We got to take the Christmas decorations down. And she'd be like, yep, uh -huh. yep. It's like you start to know what, what they mean. So, you know, yeah, I, I know, picture I my mom on like. the phone with <laughs> me. What's up? I know what that's like. Yeah, wife, yeah. And uh, is speech impaired. She speaks her own language. <laughs> It, it is. It is it, you, the language of Alzheimer's. I know, and you have, to, but you have to put yourself in someone's head. So, you know, how do I know my mom's talking about the Christmas lights while well, she's sitting on the rocking chair in the living room, saying, "Oh, we got to get rid of the candles," and it's four weeks after Christmas. She's probably looking at the Christmas tree right next to her. I say, "Oh yeah, the Christmas ornaments. They got to take the tree down." Yep, yep. So you just you have to put yourself in their mind and just try to figure it out. And I think a lot of Alzheimer's is understanding them and also just finding creative solutions around these things um, to, yeah, just normalize it as best as possible and, you know, not create unnecessary frustration or, um, yeah, resentment in right. the process. Now, you have other books in you, don't you? What do you think your next one will be? Mm, I, I have a vision for a few more, of course. Um, I would like to write a memoir about my experience from, you know, age 14 to 20, and it's quite a story. Um, just like I said, I dropped out of college, I was homeless, and then turned my life around. So I'd like to talk about that process and how people can wow. redirect their lives. Mm -hmm. And um, I'd really love to write some type of a 
eventual, you know, personal development book for, for women. Um, I'm really big into intuition and, and spiritual development, and it really drives my life and has opened up a lot of opportunities. And I think a lot of people aren't in touch with that. So, um, yeah, and, and potentially a book for, um, for, for teenage girls. I would love to write something for students that's really about building confidence and leadership because I think that's sadly lacking. And even more so now with technology, I mean, I hear this stuff you know, on a regular basis when I go into schools and I meet students and they just lack so many skills that they need from boundaries yep. to self-esteem and healthy relationships and you name it. How do you set up uh, speaking engagements uh, in schools? Curious. Yeah, it's um, it's just, it's all a sales game. I, I call up schools all day, every day. I pitch myself, I send my information, I ask if they hire speakers, if they host assemblies. Um, and that's, that's probably the best way to do it. I also have a lot of referrals now because I've been, I've actually been speaking in the youth market, um, for 13 years. That's um, something. Wow. Yeah. But full time for the past few years when I left my state job to pursue this full time. And now I'm actually represented by, um, top youth speakers. It's like the leading youth speaking agency in the U S so wow. they funnel some, some leads to me, which is nice. That's um, great. So, yeah. Thank you. Yeah, yeah, I love it. I love doing it. How much of it do you do for free, uh, at least in the beginning, I would assume? I spoke for free for years. I had no idea that any speaker charged money to speak. <laughs> I, mean, I used to think, like, how could anyone charge money? Like, I, I was doing this to be, like, virtuous <laughs> and give back and just tell my story. But when you're traveling, when you're spending hours, you know, preparing. And then I, when I went back to school, I got my degree in criminal justice, and I worked for years in victim services. So now I'm an expert on this stuff. So now I, it's like, yes, I should get paid, and this is my livelihood. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I donate a few times a year, usually to domestic violence nonprofits that don't have budgets but have an audience that really needs the message. Um, but yeah, most of it's most of it's paid. Yeah, I speak on leadership. I also speak on activism because one of the things I did in my healing journey was I just dove into volunteerism and policy work and I joined boards of directors and, you know, I just, so I'm really big into that and students mm -hmm. right now love this stuff. You know, they love the idea of protesting and rallying and driving social right. change. So I speak on that too, which is kind of cool. What do you think of today's youth and how they're being educated and stuff like that? curious compared um, to like 20 years ago or compared to when you were in school what what's changed uh well i think technology is probably the biggest factor um you know there's research that shows it changes how our brains work um we don't retain as much you know students today don't need to memorize anything even just basic facts because they can always google it um, and at least in my sphere, when I talk about dating, the role of technology has really just destroyed any sense of boundaries. Uh, students don't know how to say no. You know, you're dating someone that's blowing up your phone all night, and now you're not focusing on homework because someone's angry if you don't answer right away. Or the newest thing is when you're in a dating relationship, you can show trust by sharing your passwords or sharing your location. And I'm like, no, no, no. If you have trust, you don't need to do those you things. You don't need to, yeah. And they don't, they don't get it. They're like, well, if you have nothing to hide, why wouldn't you share your location? So is that a healthy dynamic to, to have a relationship where someone knows where you are at all times and 
as adults, is this going to become the norm? So, yeah, I think students have, um, they're more innovative, they're more creative, they're more efficient, but I also think they lack just inherent leadership skills, um, boundaries, self-care, just because they're going, 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 and they're on their screens, and yeah, it's just a digital how, world. How much do you think that has to do with social media and how dependent they are on that for communicating with each other? It's a huge factor, um, especially when it comes to self-esteem. Um, you know, you'll have a student that posts a picture of themselves, and if it only has 50 likes two hours later, they take it down because it's embarrassing. Um, yeah. Or they, if you're dating someone and you're you 50 is embarrassing. Issues, 50 right? is embarrassing. I'll take it. I'll take it. <laughs> but yeah, and then you know they they're insecure, so then they're dating someone, and they're stalking what that person's liking, and who's commenting on their stuff, and it's just, right. it's so unhealthy for their mental health. Um, so yeah, I, I see it all the time. You know, I, I've been talking about healthy dating relationships, like I said, for 13 years or so, and just the technology piece is a whole conversation in and of itself now mm -hmm. that didn't exist even six years ago, you know? So you speak on this to them, yes? All this stuff you just I mentioned? Do. Do they receive it? Do you see light bulbs going on in their heads? Do they do hear they... it? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or do they you say know, they just tune you out? For the ones who she feel... sounds like my mother. <laughs> right? <laughs> it helps that I'm younger. They do listen to right? me. Um, you know, for the ones that feel pressured and constantly overwhelmed by their friend or the person they're dating, always wanting access to them, when I say things like, if you don't want to answer your phone, you don't have to. You can take an hour and put your phone away. Or you don't have to share your location if you don't want to. And you'll see them like, you're right, right? <laughs> but it's like no one's told them that, you know? Their parents don't talk you to them give about them this permission. stuff. Right? It's like, it's okay. And it, it becomes so obvious once you say it out loud. But, you know, like most students, I mean, most teenagers, your parents don't talk to you about dating. You know, they don't. Most don't have these conversations. Most don't know this stuff is going on, and kids hide hide it really well. And so, yeah, I think they appreciate that I I talk openly about this stuff. I mean, when, as a caregiver, uh, my husband needed to know where I was at all times. My mm -hmm. cell phone was a leash. I really don't know what he would have done a few years before when. I wasn't carrying a cell phone around with me constantly. Uh, it really changed the dynamic. But he felt secure because mm -hmm. he knew where I was all the time. It wasn't a matter of, of jealousy. So that aspect of, of knowing where you are all the time, I didn't like it. But if it made him feel better, Right. We were married, so it was okay. Mm -hmm. Well, that's what's so interesting, too. It's like, you know, if I get a call from my dad and I'm in the middle of something, I feel obligated to go answer it right away, you know? And then the question is, well, why didn't you answer? You, ha you always have your phone in your pocket, you know? Mm -hmm. So there's more pressure. It's like on-demand access at all times. Mm -hmm. yeah. Oh, and God forbid you forget your phone. Right, right. <laughs> Leave it someplace, you know. Conveniently Some people get really it. upset at that, you know. <laughs> they they take it so personal. Mm -hmm. So many people are offended so easily. Yes, yeah. you're hiding something knowledge. from them. <laughs> <laughs>
So let's say, look at your look at your whole life, and you can do it all over again. What would you change? What were and I used to say? I wouldn't change anything because everything made me who I am, and and the pain helps, and this and that. But is that really true for someone like you? Because I know I I would change a couple of things. How about you? Um, I don't think I would change anything up until my mom, my mom's diagnosis. Um, I, I grew through it. I believe that she left me lessons from it. I would have maybe hoped it would have happened a little bit later in life, um, or that she would have lived a little bit longer. You know, she had eight years and, you know, I'd always do anything to have a few more years with her. But other than that, like my childhood trauma, I wouldn't change it. It's it's shown me my, my mission and my purpose in life. Mm. Um, but yeah, I I do wish um, I wish I would have had more of a chance to to just be a kid or to just be a young adult and not to have to grow up so fast. But mm. there's you know blessings in that as well. So I wouldn't change much. Well, in the last couple of minutes of the show, I wanted to ask you. Um... Oh, gosh, I forgot the question I was going to ask you. It was a good one, too. <laughs> I hate when that happens. It, it, I thought of it when you were saying what you were saying. Um, help me, Adrian. <laughs> I'll help you. <laughs> See, I, um, when you get to be my age, if you don't write things down, they'll go in Tell me that. I do it, too. I do it, too. I'm a compulsive list maker. I like I making lists. <laughs> mm -hmm. it, it gets me through the day. Otherwise, there, I don't know what I'm going to do. Is there something <laughs> you would like to share that we did not go over yet? And maybe while you're okay. talking, I might remember what I was trying to get you to say. <laughs> um, I think this is kind of a concept I teach a lot. But, you know, a lot of times when you're exhausted and feeling like you're doing all the work you know we want to say like why do i have to be here why do i have to be doing all this and i i'm all i'm really big into like reframing things and i think if we can stop ourselves in those moments and say i get to be here i get to be doing this mm -hmm. that's how you can see that this is actually a gift right caregiving is challenging but it's also a gift it's a beautiful thing to share Someday you're going to look back and have fond memories and wish you could just be, you know, giving mom a bath again, you know, because you won't get to anymore. So it's right. I, it's not why do I have to be there? It's I get to be here doing this right now. Oh. And, um, yeah, finding gratitude even in I remember the most my difficult question. moments. I remember oh, my question. You Praise did. God. Yes. yes. Uh, <laughs> before, I, before it leaves again, I better spit it out of my mouth, is what were the last moments of her life like? I mean, um, I know what – what it was like for my mother in those last, that last hour, you know, and sometimes those are very special moments and sometimes, um, can you repeat them? Can you relive that briefly? Yes. My mom uh, spent her last week in hospice in the hospital and um, she was in a lot of pain. She, mm. you know, she was not responsive anymore. She was just being medicated and being kept comfortable. And uh, I spent every single night there with her. I did not leave other than just to take a few, you know, car drives every day for a little fresh air um, because I knew that I knew I wanted to be there for it. Um, and I knew that if anyone was going to be there, it probably would be me. 
And that's how it, it turned out. My mom mm -hmm. um, eerily passed away uh, the morning of my grandmother's birthday, which is my dad's mother. And I, I the whole week I said, it's going to be August 13th. It's too much of a coincidence. Of course it's going to be that day. My, my dad's mother also had Alzheimer's, and my mom and her were very close. And so I knew it was going to happen. And um, she had had her eyes, eyes shut for days. I looked up, and I saw that her eyes were open. And I was so excited. I was like, oh, my gosh, Mom, your eyes are open. And I ran over, and she was looking out the window, and I went right into caregiver mode, right? <laughs> I said, oh, you know, it's so good to see you. And her eyes started to water, and I reached for the tissue, and I was doing all the things that I normally did, not even thinking that this was, like, the moment that she was about to pass. Mm. And so she was looking out the window. I'm blotting her eye. I'm like, oh, you know, there you go. You're all set. And then she just kind of glazed over me and and looked up at the ceiling and my heart just stopped when I realized it and she just took her last breath and uh, I was right there with her and it's like it felt like an eternity even though it's just a second um, but you know I I was so glad I was there for that moment you know I was the last person she saw heard I took a moment to allow myself to have the room with her. I then started sobbing, of course, uncontrollably. I, I spoke for a few minutes. Just in, I, I remember thinking, just in case the Alzheimer's has ceased, right? And she has clarity right now for the next few minutes. I'm going to say all I need to say. Mm. I promised her everything I would do in life, I would do to make her proud. And yeah, then I closed her eyes and, and yeah, I got the nurse. And, and that was that was her final moment. So it was quiet, peaceful, hopefully not mm. painful, and um, I, I'm so grateful that I that I was there for that. You took advantage of that. You did a lot of closure, which is very, very important. So many people, you know, regret uh, the things that weren't said, whether mm. she understands or not. There are people in comas that uh, we understand that they can hear. Mm -hmm. um, so. Gosh, yes. thank you for a wonderful, wonderful interview. It was great. You do, you're a great speaker, and if you yes, need anything, you let us know. And we're so happy for your life. We're happy how you've turned your lemons into lemonade. And you're, you're young, you're beautiful, you've got the world by the tail, and Prince Charming is out there, and you're going to know <laughs> it when you see him. And I believe he's going to be faith. a lucky, lucky dog. <laughs> lucky guy. <laughs> um, so how do we get in touch with you if we, if we want you to speak? or? Sure. You know. um, I'm on all the social medias at Ashley Bendixson, and my website is ashleybendixson.com, and I have my, my youth speaking programs on there, so you can see what I offer students, and I do parent workshops and teacher trainings, and of course, I'm always available to talk about this subject or do a virtual reading, or uh, you can find my book on Amazon, The, La the Language oh, what of Time. Is your, what's the title of your book? Yeah, it's The Language of Time. Mm -hmm. Still so crazy. Very <laughs> like you nice. Your first book, like, I wrote Great this. Cover. This is nuts. Yeah, Who designed yeah. I, cover? I designed it. Thank you. Good for you. Um, yeah, so that's on Amazon if anybody wants to find it or thelanguageoftime.com. <laughs> well, thank you. And Adrian is at uh, thecaregiverspace.org, uh, Facebook, same name. And I'm at caregiverdave.com, Facebook, same thing. So thank you for coming along and being on the show and being uh, a joy to our guests. We did a great job. Until next time, bye-bye.
Like the sun will never rise, like the birds will never sing. Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to. Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.